This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Uh, today is going to be such a perfectly timed episode. We're very fortunate to have Peter Atwater here with us. He's the author of a book that is a must read for every trader called Mood and Markets. Uh, Peter's also the president of Financial Insights, a consulting firm, and they advise institutional investors, corporations, and public policymakers on issues affecting financial services industry. He's also adjunct professor for William Mary and the University of Delaware. Uh, after having a su successful career in financial services, including 13 years at J.P. Morgan, Peter turned his attention to socioeconomics and how changes in social mood drive changes in our behavior. Uh, this book, Mood and Markets, has blown me away. I'd never even heard the tomes, uh, term before, socioeconomics. I was actually stumbling over the word when I first read it in your book, Peter. But now I've got it, or almost got it. But Mood and Markets uh, will blow you away. It's fascinating, research-based, lots of insight into how the markets measure mood. And we're going to talk about mood today. We're going to talk about trader mood today and the, and the mood of the entire marketplace. And this is going to be a very interesting conversation. We might have you here for a very long time, Peter. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Sounds good. Welcome. Thank you for coming here. And, you know, did I do well by your bio? Is there anything important that we need to add to that about, you know, kind of who you are and what you're up to? No, I, I the only addition I would say is I also teach at William & Mary, my alma mater. Uh, just finished up a semester teaching a lot of the concepts from this class. So Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, well, Michelle Wooker recommended you to us, uh, and I'm sorry, I had not heard of you before, but I'm very thrilled to know about you now. We had Michelle on recently for her book, You Are What You Risk. And uh, I think because she saw how enthusiastic I was over her, you know, perspective, if you will, on the world and uh, on finance especially, uh, I think she knew that I would be really turned on by your work, and that's why she suggested you to us. One of the things that's so fascinating for me at the start of your book is that you talk about how you just really didn't give a lot of credence to socioeconomics at the beginning. Uh, you kind of poo-pooed it a little bit, and then you had this like aha moment. So maybe walk us through that and explain what socioeconomic is to those. We, most of our audience are day traders. Some are very sophisticated. Some are very new uh, and, a, and a plethora of other people. But please tell, tell those who don't know what it is, what it is. So socioeconomics is a social science that was started by Robert Prechter. And I suspect that some of your viewers will will know his name because Bob is really one of the leading pioneers in Elliott Wave um, technical analysis, an extraordinary technician. And so he, you know, looks at everything through the perspective of fractals and, and waves. And what he began to discover is that our moods follow similar behavior. 
uh, these, these patterns of, of rising and falling mood. And what he began to discover is that behavior more broadly mirrors mood, as do markets. And so Bob early on started to look at you know things like music and it, their relationship to to the markets. We have lots of historical fashion indicators, you know, skirts rising and falling, neckties widening and narrowing. And what was so interesting to me was and what challenged me was the whole argument of causation. You know, I, I'm an economist by training, a banker by, by profession. And I had always been led to believe that what we did drove how we felt. Mm-hmm. And socionomics turns that backwards and really challenges you to think about, well, what is how we feel doing to impact what we do? And that just so turned on a light for me to realize that the mood is the, is the condition precedent. It's, it's what sets us up to do the things that we do. And really important in the, in the area of investing because we don't always pay attention to our mood. And, and that to me is one of the most important aspects of socionomics is just be aware of how you feel. What, what do you think, tell us like, what does that look like for you? Are you an investor or a trader yourself? And, or how do you apply this to you? What changed for you personally when you got that? So I began to realize that my own mood ran counter to good investment decisions because investing requires you to do exactly the opposite of what your gut tells you to do. Mm. You know, as a, as a socionomist, so back in March, yeah. you know, the markets are panicking because of the pandemic. And I'm getting all excited because uh-huh. my, my background with socionomics has taught me panic only happens at one point in the mood cycle. And that's at the bottom. And so I'm watching all of these people freaking out, thinking it's the end of the world, not appreciating that that panic just objectively mm-hmm. only happens when we lack certainty and control. And the, when that happens, it's always, always, always the beginning of the of the pivot point. When you began to really see this, how did you begin to describe it to people for the first time? Because there are going to be people who watch this and first of all, they may not even have the distinction between what a socio-economist uh, is versus socionomic. So let's just get that distinction right out of the gate for people. So, you know, socionomics is, is, has really nothing to do with economics. You know, I, I would argue that economics is a lagging indicator to social mood. You know, it it takes time for us to make big investment decisions. The economy lags mood, you know, with sort of this perfect, you know, parallel uh, sine curve that goes along with it. And, and so I, I, I think for investors, it all feels really weird to talk about mood. Um, yeah. I can remember meeting some institutional investors early on, and I felt like 
um, uh, what's her name? Shirley MacLaine, you know, yes. going in, you know, with crystals and tarot cards to talk about why mood is so important. And I could see investors, these professional investors, their eyes would roll and they think, you know, this, this guy is a nut job. And, and, and I quickly discovered that mood isn't a really good way to describe this, that, it, that a more approachable way is to think about this in terms of confidence. Mm -hmm. And so to think about it, that when we don't have confidence, what we're really saying is two things. I'm not certain, and I don't feel like I have control. And we need both of those to feel confident. And at lows in confidence, we feel like everything is uncertain and we feel powerless to do anything about it. I mean, that, that to me defined that, that low last March when the pandemic hit. Yeah. We, we didn't know what was going on. People are you know, Googling the word unprecedented because it just didn't feel at all familiar. Right. And, we, and we didn't feel like we, we knew what to do. Yeah, yeah. So, so what would you say... Uh, would help if somebody says to themselves, hmm, this, this, how does this impact the market? There's a, there's a quote in here where you talk about uh, Bolton and Mao found in their breakthrough study around emotional states uh, implied in Twitter messages and that these useful observations, uh, these are useful because we have been of the mind that the stock market expresses a social mood within minutes or hours, but it may ultimately prove to have a longer lag. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I use Twitter a lot. Um, I, I watch Twitter uh, in the same way I watch the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and, and the news, the, the media, because the media mirrors our mood. If, if you're in the business of, of being in the media, your job is to put in front of people either television shows, newspapers, magazines that they are going to eagerly consume, which means it has to fit mood. Yeah. And the same is true when we talk about things going viral on the internet. What is viral is something that resonates with everyone because of their mood. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm constantly watching to see what's popular on Twitter, what's popular across social media, because those things that are popular are telling me exactly how people feel. Um, you know, are they stridently optimistic or are they scared? What are, what, are the, what are the things that are being shared widely among the crowd? And, and if, you know, if a day trader is able to pay attention to that, how would they take that knowledge then and apply it to their trading account? They should be aware that the crowd is consistently wrong. And what you're looking for are extremes in sentiment. And for a day trader, the extreme may not be, you know, a, a one-year bottom, but it can be, you know, even during the course of a day. I mean, we're, we're recording this on, on Wednesday, May the 19th, cryptocurrencies cratered overnight. And you could watch this morning this climax, this crescendo 
a very bearish sentiment towards cryptocurrencies of all shapes and sizes. Yeah. And, and that, that sense of panic forming a low. Do I think it's the low? I don't know. I, and I don't care. What, what I know is when the crowd is of one voice, high and low, that's, that's a sign that we've reached an extreme in sentiment. And so that extreme in sentiment then is what would inform you you want to be you you're suggesting perhaps your book is suggesting be in tune be connected to that sentiment because because knowing that allows you to be one step ahead yes yes because the the story precedes the action so people and, talk about, you know, follow the money. No, yeah. no, no, no. Follow the story mm. because the story is where the money will soon follow. Uh, yeah, that's that's great. a great quote. It, it reminds me of at the, at the beginning of your book, you, you uh, kind of, I think it might be in the introduction or preface, you talk about the why and the how and how people tend to overlook those aspects. Could you, uh, could you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so I I look at not just why, but why now? Why is this being said now? Why is this being done now? You know, and and particularly when policymakers get involved or you see something, you know, I watch CN, CNBC and Bloomberg to see what is news. You know, what is occupying their, you know the producers' minds, the, the, the experts, the stories, why are these people on? And what you'll frequently see is that you get these big clusters of uniform views. You know, recently it was on inflation or, you know, backlogs and stockpiling. But, but the producer's job is to put in front of viewers things that they want to digest that are of their interest. And so I'm, I'm watching to see, you know, what's on television. What's the front page of the wall street journal? You know, why is it there? Yeah. And, and frequently you'll see a story that goes from being on page 86 to page 15 to page two to page one. Yeah. And when it gets to the first page, real estate's expensive there. Yeah. That's, that is typically its last point before it moves, you know, into the archives. So just as out of curiosity, you know, of course, there's, I'm conscious of the fact that there's very few uh, media, you know, companies that are not, you know, even very different perspectives, conservative versus liberal, they're owned by the same mothership, so to speak. Do you, you know, there is this accusation sometimes or even a, a not accusation, but this the sentiment among journalists I remember hearing years ago, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So there's people have a tendency to be like, oh, they they just want to scare us, the media, because then we click, you know, or get us excited. Wh where do you stand on that versus them trying to reflect back the mood of the moment? We we watch it when we want to be scared. So, wow. so unpack that a little bit more. So we unknowingly tell the media what to put in front of us. 
Wow. So that's so let me, huge, Peter. That so is let me, huge. Let me give you a, a, a real example of this. And I'm going to choose print media. Okay. Because it, it tells the story really well. So in late 1999, early 2000, do you remember what huge book hit the markets for kids, for teens? I was in the book industry then, so I really should know. Was it Harry Potter? It was Harry Potter. Oh, it was Harry Potter. And, and I loved Teen Lit because teenagers are completely unfiltered when it comes to mood. Well, we can talk about that <laughs> another time. But yeah. So, so Harry Potter starts in 1999, 2000, and it's fanciful. It's very yes. imagination. You know, it's yes. all really cool, positive. Yeah. You know, and what happens? As mood starts to decline, it gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And when it wasn't dark enough, where, where did we go after that? Well, we went to the Twilight series, yeah. wow. right? And when that wasn't dark enough to fit our mood, where did we go to next? 50 Shades of Grey. Well, the adults did, but where'd the kids yeah, go? Where'd the kids go? After Twilight. What happened after Twilight? I can't the remember. Hunger Games. Oh, Hunger Games, yeah. Oh, jeez. Now, you want to know something really interesting about the Hunger Games? Do you know when it was released? Probably like early 2000s, but... How about the weekend Lehman Brothers failed? Oh, really? No way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Hunger Games was the perfect read for people who were feeling the way we felt the weekend Lehman Brothers collapsed. Wow. Wow. But how does that, you know, that books for books to come out into the end the world, like they, there's months and, you know, years prior yeah. to those books. So, so how, how is that the author? Is that the publisher? connected to the sentiment of where we're going so creatives tend to lead yeah um you know it's a, 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 the arts tend to feel it these these are creative yes. mood driven yes. people but the audience picks it up yeah so yeah. so you'll see books or movies that you know that are not popular but then suddenly gain popularity yes yes and so the audience is finding what, what fits. Um, Spotify, you know, keeps yeah. track of all of this for music. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I wish they would let me break into their data. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's expressing exactly how we feel. You know, we listened to Adele in 2011 when, you know, you've got Occupy Wall Street. And then, right. you know, a couple of years later, we're, we're dancing to... You know, Adele, I, I joke with my students, you know, if they take yeah. one thing away from the class, it's buy Adele, sell Pharrell. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so this is across the arts, music, the cover, you know, the top of the fold of the newspaper. It's all an end. It's all actually in response to us. Yes. To how we're feeling. Yeah. All right, there's a quote here that I had highlighted. I mean, I have 
copious <laughs> notes, two, two, lots of notes here. And I still have probably more. So we might have to have you back, Peter, because I just feel like I'm, I'm trying to process so much information. I can't get my questions out quick enough. So speaking of what you just said, I want to just talk about Okay, and this is even elaborative on Lucas's question because I have the same question, Lucas. You talked about the why being a particularly lonely place. Such a great quote. And, and as a coach, I'm usually you know, doing executive coaching for traders and for uh, finance executives. And that the concept of why is a lonely place because you are dead on where they focus on immediate actionable buy uh, and sell recommendations, but they don't really pay attention to, you know, the who, what, and when, never mind the how, and especially the why. So if somebody is saying, well, what, what's important about the why? What's your answer to that? The, the, what is important about the why is it forces you to go back and think objectively about the behavior and what drives the behavior. You know, why did you do that? And what does that decision say about your level of confidence and your outlook on the future? on your level of certainty in the world around you, your level of control, because certainty and control sound very qualitative, but I think they're incredibly quantitative. You know, that, that powerlessness versus truly having things in control, we, we don't think enough about that. But I, I know what it looks like to feel powerless, to be, um, you know, completely uncertain. It's, it's, way, it's the way you feel when you're rushed to the emergency room. Yeah. But we don't think about those as being a, a valuable measure of, of when to get in the markets, when to get out of the markets. And because investing... Good, great investing requires you to put money in, in those moments where you have no certainty and no control, where it feels like you're lighting money on fire. Yeah. That, those are the best. That's when returns are the greatest. Yeah. But what are we afraid of then? We're afraid that the market is going to keep going down. Yeah. And so I, I look to see, well, does everybody believe that? Does the whole crowd believe that it's going to get worse? Because when that happens, anybody who's selling is already sold. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. that's the that's the mindset that I'm trying to get in inside of. And I look at it for myself objectively. Yeah. But what 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 is it that how has this changed you and your own investing? Like give us, uh, give us like an example of you, you woke up today, you know, you saw crypto yeah. is, is cratering. What is that telling you about how you're going to potentially invest your money or so, trade? So if I'm a short-term trader, mm -hmm. that kind of panic is a, is a buy signal because 
panic only happens when sentiment is extreme. Yeah. And so we have these very emotional reactions where we, we naturally overreact. So, so I'm looking for overreaction. Mm. And, and people who are long in that situation are naturally going to overreact because cost basis really screws up how we look at things. Talk more so, about that. So where I've bought something, the price at which I've bought it now completely frames how I look at it. If it goes up, I think I'm brilliant. I've made a lot of money. If it goes down, I was an idiot and I'm, and I, it feels painful to me. And it's all a function of the, that reference point. Instead of looking at it saying price has gone down, well, this, this could be an opportunity. We'd look at it and go, no, price has gone down and I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> what is the first step somebody can take to step into this perspective, a socionomic perspective? The, the first step I think is to distance yourself and, and, almost look at the market like it's an, like it's an experimental lab. You know, what are, what are the mice doing today? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, because they're, they're doing, they're doing stuff. And so you want to see what are they talking about? What are they, what are they buying? What are they selling? You know, watch them mm-hmm. because, and importantly, I, I think one of the things that gets investors in lots of trouble is they think they've got to be smart. And I and and the reality is no, your price is de- de- determined by what others do. You don't, you know, even Warren Buffett doesn't determine the price of the things that he holds. The crowd determines your price. So watch the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. And do the opposite. When the crowd gets extreme. Mm-hmm. So when they get cocky when they get full of themselves, when you see on CNBC or people trumpeting all the money they've made, the gains that they've experienced, you know, CNBC and and Bloomberg and all these guys, they love to put the victors on TV. Yeah. And so when, when you start to see these victory laps of, of, professional investors or, or more importantly, retail investors who've made lots of money, that, that's an indicator that a lot of money's been made. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I look to see, you know, are there articles on who's lost a lot of money or are there articles on who's made a lot of money? Wow. And then how do you respond for yourself? If, if I'm, I start to get prepared. Yeah. And, and I, I don't try to time to the second. Right. You know, the, the big turns, you know, March of last year was an easy turn to call. Yeah. GameStop was an easy turn to call because that was the other extreme. Yeah. That was everybody dying to get in. Yeah. And again, watch what they're doing. Yeah. They were buying call options. And when that didn't satisfy them, they were buying out of the money, short dated call options. So what does that say about sentiment? 
I have a crowd who believes that every call option you buy is a lottery ticket, a winning lottery ticket. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote, one of the testimonials for your book that I liked the most was, it said, in Mood and Mark, Peter gives it to us straight between the eyes that we are all in adrift in a sea of mood. Uh, Peter helps us make, make us money and save us from embarrassment. Peter's horizon preference framework is the best approach I've found for isolating the state and direction of social mood for all major marketing investment decisions. Please tell us about the horizon preference framework. Sure. So as you might expect, trying to understand what changes in us as our mood changes, I spend a lot of time looking at the kinds of decisions that we make at extremes and sentiment. And one of the, the characteristics that I found was that at very lows, major lows in confidence, there are only three things we're thinking about. Me, here, now. Nothing else matters when you are riding in the ambulance to the emergency room. Yeah. Nothing matters when you are diagnosed with a major disease where you get hurt. Yeah. When we don't have certainty and control, the only things we can focus on are ourselves in this moment, in this place. Yeah. And so we unknowingly have these variable lens goggles that we wear mm. that in lows and confidence, everything retreats. And what was so fun, again, during the pandemic is the, the Wall Street Journal actually ran a, a story where they highlighted people are selling airline stocks and buying pizza delivery stocks. So, so we're, we were in incredible me here now mode. Yeah. Yeah. You know, bring it to me. Don't let me go out of the house. You know, yeah. the quarantining is itself a, a manifestation of that me here now mindset. Wow. At the other end of the extreme, it's us everywhere forever. Wow. We're generous. We're futuristic in our thinking. And we think not just locally, nationally, globally, we, we think about Mars. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I love that you have Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk talking about going to Mars. At the same time, you have futuristic cryptocurrencies all being devoured. That, that very abstract, you know, Futurama kind of mindset that that captures our fantasy. Yeah. And, and is it, would you say it, it is accurate to say that those two extremes, that they those two mindsets are extremes? Yes. Yeah, there's nothing beyond me here now versus us everywhere forever. We, we don't think yeah. of confidence as having bookends to it, but it does. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and those are the bookends. Yeah, we, we have overconfidence and invincibility at one end, and we have defeated and vulnerable and underconfidence 
at the at the other. Yeah. Do we swing between those two all the time? Just humankind, mankind? Is that just yes. our temperament to go from one pendulum swing to the other? Yes. <laughs> and the crowd does. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it really fun to watch, you know, those who feel invincible. You know, invincibility is one of the, the traits that I watch really closely. Yeah. When we, we feel it or we think somebody else is. I mean, earlier this year, everyone believed that Elon Musk was invincible. Yes. They believed Kathy Wood was invincible. Wow. And, and invincibility is something that I, I watch because that's, that's a bell ringer for me. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, God, so many questions <laughs> I have for you. Did you want to say something, Lucas? Uh, I was just thinking like, as, as you were speaking, it, it, it was exactly, I mean, you kind of called it with the, you know, going to Mars. And it was like, as soon as everyone was talking about going to Mars, Tesla started going down. And it's been going down ever since. And now it's interesting because it's getting to some uh, some technical points on on its chart, but also people are getting to a point where they're like, Tesla's going to zero. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. So Let's see so, what happens. So extrapolation. Yeah. I, I love those ex, those extreme extrapolations. Mm -hmm. So because they, they speak to the level of certainty and control that we feel. So if if on the way up, you know, what, what's fun is you'll see prices double, triple, and then people start to draw lines mentally about where it could go. Yeah. And the, yeah. at, at the extreme, the extrapolations tend to be near vertical. You know, yeah. it's not only going much higher, but it's going much higher, much faster than it ever has before. And to your point, I love it when the crowd says it's going to zero. Yeah, <laughs> because we had that actually with with Tesla in the summer of 2019. The the crowd was all you know it's going it's going bankrupt. It's you know, and and I'm a believer that you know it either kills you know in that moment something either dies very quickly or it comes back to life like like Lazarus from the dead. And when you are watching this, are you watching this now? as a anthropologist watches it or are you also putting your money you know on the line to take advantage of this insight and perspective so i'm i'm watching it like an anthropologist i'm putting my own money to work and i'm putting my own reputation to work i mean i i have a, a consulting business where yes. i'm using this with professional investors with with corporations who are trying to think strategically yes. you know this is what i think is going to happen next because this is what current sentiment is is saying to me about where we are moving between these bookends yeah do you feel that people especially because you've been doing this now for quite some time do you f how come it's not well more well known peter I, I think it's not well known because so often it's very contrarian. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult for sort of widespread, and it's particularly in a meme-based social media world, yeah. to, be, to be contrarian. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it just always runs 
in, in opposition to what the crowd is doing. And so yeah. it becomes very easy for the crowd. If, you, if you're not immediately right as a contrarian, you're a dumbass. <laughs> yeah, that's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> yep. And so, so I, I, I think it's very difficult to be widely popular doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah. But damn, I am blown away. And I think because of, you know, being in conversations with traders who are always saying to me, you know, that they don't, is if they think they could be unemotional. And I'm like, good luck. You're a human being. You're going to never be unemotional. How do you prepare for that? But there's still, the, especially the young, naive ones think, you know, I just have to be unemotional, Kim. I'm like, who taught you this? It's so never going to happen. No. And so rather than trying to be unemotional, try to track your emotion. Just, just plot it. You know, I, I do work. Um, I do a lot of mapping of confidence. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's, it's amazing when you have people look at their own decision-making in terms of um, relative certainty and control, where they start to plot behaviors, their own behaviors, their own decisions. So, you know, I, I would say to you, come in, um, let's, let's map the last 18 months, just choose the milestones that are significant to you and what, just put them, put them down. Now let's look at them. Where did you put them? And let's talk about how you felt in those moments. Mm -hmm. And did you, were you making good decisions, bad decisions? Were you too optimistic, too pessimistic in hindsight? And you can start to see that, that we routinely make the wrong calls based on our level of certainty and control. Mm. Okay, so let's. I'm going to just take this into my first trade ever, which was Mara. I purchased Mara because it was a sympathy play because Bitcoin went over fifty uh, on the was it Martin Luther King Day weekend. So I did a swing. It was my first trade ever, and. Uh, Bryce, who was holding my hand through this trade at Stocks to Trade, called to me, you know, Tuesday morning and he said, you know, you're up 20%. What do you want to do? Do you want to stay in? Do you want to come out? And I remember having the feeling of, I want more. I think I could get more here. And then I noticed that. I noticed the feeling of greed. I noticed the feeling of insatiability. And because I noticed that, I was like, I'm coming out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because that is telling me that I'm probably not in the right choi- place of choice, right? I'm feeling emotional. And, you know, I, I think it probably stayed that way for a day or two, but I was still happy with what I did. But it would that be an example of be in tune to your mood? Like in that moment, I probably thought, oh, I could make a lot more money here, right? But that was like the warning flag for me to be like, Oh, you're overly confident now. Is that yes? So, so when you're counting your profits, yeah, even though you haven't sold it, right? That, that's exactly. a, that, that that's a sign. Um, oh, I also good. like it when people start to think about what would what are they going to do with those profits. Mm. So, because that then suggests a level of permanence to those profits. Uh-huh. 
And permanence is an interesting attribute that only comes with extremely high confidence. Yes. So, so I, I want to see that you're counting your profits and I want to know, so what are you thinking about doing with that money? Yeah. Um, because the more you're mentally committing to do something with it, the more you've created a story that is, you know, entirely grounded on extreme confidence. Wow. Wow. I almost feel this is important for people to read that aren't even in finance because it gives you perhaps a uh, warning sign that you're stepping into hubris in general. You know, my, my students, I teach a class that covers a lot of these topics. And one of the things that have, they have said to me is how helpful it is in their own life. Mm-hmm. So one is they, they begin to realize when they're overconfident and, yeah. and they can picture themselves in their map and go, whoa, 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 need to, need to dial it down. The other is they begin to appreciate too when they're extremely pessimistic. Yes. Um, and so they realize that when, you know, one of the things that I teach them is that when we're pessimistic, our mean voice naturally comes out. Yeah. The voice that tells us that we're not enough, that we're bad at this, that we suck at that, that we're not pretty, we're not. Um, yeah. Smart and enough. so, yeah. And so they begin to realize that all of that story that, that they're telling themselves is a function of where they are confidence wise, not reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Powerful. Very powerful. I I call that the inner gremlin or the inner saboteur in coaching and spend so much time at the beginning of coaching for people to get that distinction. But what you're speaking to is almost like it's it's like uh, an alarm. You're, you're, You're letting them hear a specific alarm and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. You're just creating a little bell that goes off like a Pavlov dog and you're like, oh, that's what that is. That's what it is, you know, and it's yeah. a natural stress response. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. But it must help interrupt, you know, that that's where depression starts. You know, it can, it can easily take you down that downward spiral uh, when you start to not have that confidence and or that sense of optimism. Yeah. And, it, and it's what a, that, that just seems like an incredible extra benefit. It's like, wow, it can actually help you from going down that dark cycle or going to hubris and being too sure of yourself. And so what, you know, in those moments to, to stop and say, what can I do to feel more in control? What can I do to make my life more predictable? Mm. Because even taking small steps helps you to put a floor on it and begin to move forward. And being able to say to somebody, hey, things feel really uncertain to me. Yes. That's a very different conversation than I feel weak. I feel vulnerable. We're, We're afraid to say those things. We are. Men especially. Men especially have been... Shamed for saying those things yes. by the culture. Yeah. And, and to instead say, I don't feel like I have c- 
control here. Yes. Um, I have a, a, a soccer coach um, who uses this with his with the the people on his team. It's, he's completely reframed how he talks to them wow. because the conversation is is all around what do you need to do to feel more in control? Yeah. What do you need to do to feel that things are more predictable? Yeah. It's, and that it's, takes all of the shame out of it. Absolutely. It, it's giving, I can see that it gives you access to a neutral uh, a perspective of yourself, a neutral opportunity. It gives you the opportunity to stand in neutrality, not make yourself wrong or put an evaluation upon where you are, but to just acknowledge, like, you know, you need more oxygen sometimes right. and plane it you know, if something goes yeah. wrong, it's like you just need to have more certainty and more consistency or predictability, as you said. Yeah. And who doesn't need that? And who, who could feel bad for needing those two things? Like, yeah. And, and you know, we, we've been dealt that in spades in the last year. Yeah. And so it, you know, there's a, there's an enormous desperation for certainty yeah. and, and for a yes. sense of control. Yes. And it's part of the human condition. We do need that to function. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gosh, holy mackerel. <laughs> this is so, this is important. This is really important information, Peter. Thank you so much for it. I have, are you okay to stay just a little longer? A couple sure. more questions. Yep. <laughs> okay. Lucas, do you have anything off the top of your head you wanted to ask? But the biggest thing I, I was thinking, and I like the way you frame it as confidence um, mm -hmm. and, and mood is, I've heard it said before, is things are never as good or as bad as we make them in the moment. Um, and when you think about that as your confidence and like the way you said about tracking it, I think that's, that's huge. If people can, I have to do it now because it's, I have to see what, what it is in retrospect too. So. Yeah. yeah. What, what changes, right? If you're yeah. really confident at, in just because things are feeling certain and predictable, is your trading looking different than the days when, you know, like, I'm curious, Peter, have you had at the firms you've advised, did the traders start to track that mood uh, in general to see if it impact? I mean, it, it's certainly impacting their trading. Yeah. And, and they start to, to talk about, you know, are we in me here now mode or are we in us everywhere forever mode? Wow. You know, where, where are we in this, in this spectrum of confidence? Yeah. Because they can begin to see the relationship between how they feel as an investment team and the choices they make. Yeah. And again, just being able to map it makes it objective and they can start to say, we're getting too far to this side. Let's, let's be either more aggressive or less aggressive than, than feels right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, the thing that I just thought of now is uh, the middle way you know, the middle path in, in uh, Buddhism, you know, it's find the middle path. You don't want to be too extreme. You want to find that right in the middle, that equilibrium. And it's just, all right. So here's, here is another question for you. Oh goodness here. Uh, well, first it's a quote. Uh, you quote an economist who said that the macroeconomy fluctuates between extremes due to the society's tendency to continually fall prey to an error of optimism followed by an error of pessimism. In your book, Peter, you, 
you are basically updating that and you're characterizing it now as psychological extremes, as hopeful delusion, fearful delusion. Uh, because people don't simply make stupid mistakes time and again. They repeatedly delude themselves and each other because shifts in unconscious mood powerfully impact the changes in confidence and even in beliefs. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So one of the things that we, we don't appreciate is how our level of confidence changes our perceptions of the world around us. Mm-hmm. So there's fascinating work done in the area of perception, uh, particularly in, in the sports world. You know, confident baseball players at the bat, at bat see a bigger, slower moving ball than when they don't have confidence. Wow. Uh, field goal kickers. The poles are wider and the crossbar is lower when they feel confident. Wow. Is this like Schrodinger's cat where the <laughs> so, observer changes the experience? Yeah. So, so the whole, our, our visualization, our sense of touch, you know, all of our senses alter in response to our level of confidence. Holy crap. This is incredible, Peter. So it, it's not just that the world changes, but our perception of the world changes. And so we, we don't appreciate our own, the way our own body is driving us to take risk when confidence is high. Because if I see a big, slow-moving ball, you know, what am I going to do? I am going to swing for the fences when that ball comes near. And so our perceptions are unknowingly altering our response and the things that we do. And I, I, I think, you know, rising market prices have the same impact in terms of our perception of the, the certainty and, and our level of control in the markets. Yeah. And so it, it, I can't help but think, okay, so on one hand, that confidence in that baseball player is, it's, a, it's like this cumulative effect where that ball does look bigger now and he is feeling confident in himself. It, that probably helps him succeed at hitting that ball. And when, if, if I'm that baseball player, how do I want to make sure that I'm not going, taking it too far? So you want to recognize that that it is your perception that has changed. The mm. ball is still the same size that it was. Mm. So the market is, is as uncertain today as it has always been. Mm. And that's a hard thing for people to realize. You know, I, I say to groups, the world was no more nor no less uncertain the day before and the day after 9-11. Wow. What changed was our perception of the world. Yeah. But there has always been terrorism. There's always been. But what changed was how we saw the world around us. Yeah. 
and to to just recognize that that when things happen, what's happening along with our changes in confidence is the way we see the world around us. Mm. So do you advocate? Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, we were incredibly fearful of the pandemic. Yes. Not knowing what the pandemic was going to entail. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see this impact all of your life? Like, what's different for you in your relationships, in your experience of a pandemic, uh, in regards to your own health and your decision making? Like, what's the sh- what's the shift? Some stories that let us see this in real time in the way you live your life and work. So I am nowhere near as afraid of un- of things that were uncertain to me as I used to be. Mm-hmm. Because when I see things as uncertain, I realize that it's me, not the thing. Mm-hmm. That, that it, it's probably a function of the fact that I'm inexperienced at it, never done it before, never seen it before. Um, and that, that fear is, is my response and it's subjective based on how I feel. So I'm going to be more afraid when I feel not confident than when I do feel confident. So just being very aware that, that when we worry, when we're fearful, it, that's a statement on us, not a statement on what's happening around, necessarily happening around us. Yeah. Do you, do you, let's say an important decision has to be made and you notice now because you're so in tune to this, I'm not feeling particularly in a good mood today. I might also think about this decision when I am in a good mood so that you have the ability to see the decision in both perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Not, don't be afraid to not make it, make the decision today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and conversely, um, it, to, to be cognizant that, you know, nothing exceeds like excess. Hmm. And, and so we just need to recognize that if it feels too good, it may yeah. feel too good for too long. Yeah. But, but ultimately the pendulum does swing back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't be afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm also thinking just of love and romance and how, you know, there is that like elation at the beginning. And yet that is probably because of that perception besides the hormones and everything else that's being kicked up and dopamine. Uh, but there's also this perception that we have of like forever or, you know, at least for girls, probably, you know, <laughs> they step quickly into that forever uh, enthusiasm. And yet what you're trying to say is come, come back to center. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have said to other investors, you know, on a football field, there's 80 yards between the two 10 yard lines it's very easy to spot when you're getting close to one end or the other. 
And people feel like, oh, I have to call the bottom. I have to call the top. No, there's, there's 80 yards to play where, you know, you can get it directionally correct, make a lot of money and not worry about, you know, what happens after that Yeah, on one side or the other. Yeah. Uh, another quote from your book, uh, too often we associate uh, markets with emotion, and I believe being able to distinguish mood and its characteristics from emotion creates an enormous advantage for investors. I then tell them to specifically look at how mood affects the decisions we make. So let's just, let's just have you take us back to this moment where this became aha for you. What was it that kind of landed? So, yeah, what, what I realized is that motion, emotion requires a trigger. Mm. That, that emotion is a response to something. And so emotion is actually a lagging behavior. Mm. I cry after something has happened. Yes. I laugh after the joke is told. Yes. And so what you want to do is step before that and say, why did you laugh at the joke? Yeah. What, what was it that made the joke funny to you? What was it that made you cry in that moment? Yeah. And we, we, again, we tend to look at all these emotions, not realizing that it was what it was the setup to the emotion. That's what's so important. Yeah. And that's yeah. mood. Yeah. That's yeah. the difference between mood and emotion. Yeah. Makes Great. makes a lot of sense. Wow. It's so it's so deep. I mean, I mean uh, uh, the other thing I'm a huge advocate of is nonviolent communication which helps people understand their needs versus their wants. There's a real distinction between the two with that work. And one of the things that I say to clients is first track your feeling. You know, if you're feeling depressed, frustrated, angry, or you're feeling joyful, peaceful, and easeful, those are just flags. Those feelings are indicators that needs were met or they weren't met. And being able to just even sit in that feeling without being you know, caught up in it, but like noticing, oh, I didn't get my need for communication met. How do I become a better steward of that? I can even see how that work with what your work is, like it would just flourish even more. It, it, it ties completely to it because when we are vulnerable, we have scarcity in something. There's a, there's a need that is not being met. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I think you're, you're spot on encouraging people to identify what is that need. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other thing I see traders do is unconsciously, they are trying to get their need met from their trades or the marketplace. You can't get it met there. It's going to be costly. You could, but it's going to be costly. Well, and, and particularly because that need to fit in, particularly if you are an investor, means... Fitting in means I'm making money when everybody else is making money. Yes, yes. And you feel completely out of the community, out of the tribe, if you aren't. Yeah. 
and it becomes more important. I even one treater told me because of the lockdown, because of loneliness, uh, somebody you know in one of the rooms said that this they were he was going to take this trade. This trader didn't even think there that this was a good trade, but he wanted to be in the trade with the guy. He and he could see that, and he like unabashedly did it. And I was, can you see that your need for connection is what in, informed your doing that? How do we get your need for connection met without it being so costly going into a trade that you probably know is not even going to be good for you and your account, your setup? Yeah, and, and you see it, you know, particularly with all with all these chat rooms and all of the these, you know subreddit groups and this group and that yes. group. Yes. You know, it really suck people into making decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make because they feel that, you know, if they're not buying, they're they're not a hitter, they're not, you know, this or that, you know. YOLO. They, they're not you're in the in the they're not with diamond hands. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm looking at all that saying, you know, diamond hands itself is an indicator of yeah. sentiment. Yes, <laughs> absolutely true. Absolutely true. And it also felt like the meme coming out of it was this, uh, we're going to give it to the man. Mm-hmm. It was It was like, I'll, I'll throw this money down the drain because it'll help take down the man. And I'm like, what are you doing, people? Yeah. <laughs> wow. This okay. has been great, Peter. Peter, thank you. This is, I mean... There's more rabbit holes to explore. Would you be willing to let us have you back at some point? I'd be happy to come back. Okay, thank you. I I can't thank you enough for your open-mindedness many years ago when you could have easily kept yourself, no, this is not right. You you could have stayed stubborn and closed-minded and your willingness to say, wait a minute, let me take a different look at this uh, is, is just says so much about you. And thank God you did that for all of our sakes. So I am so grateful to your work. Really, it's profound. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about it, Command. Thank you. Good. Good. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. We'll want to know what you guys think about this episode. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of questions, Lucas, to follow up on. Uh, please give us your comments in uh, on YouTube. And if you're listening on uh iTunes. It always helps to get that algorithm up by giving us a review. So let us know what you think and give us, please, lots of questions because I would love to have Peter back on. Thank you for watching the Wall Street Coach Podcast, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.